Travolting presents The Fraser's Edge. Hosted by Jeff Sweeney and Stuart Elmore. Covering the last time. Enjoy the episode. Whoa. For the last time. Whoa. For the last time. That's right, folks. This week we're talking about the... Oh, God. When did this movie come out? 2006. <laughs> the 2006. Oh, my God. I destroyed the flow. Um, we're talking about the 2006 uh, Brendan Fraser motion picture, The Last Time. Thank you for listening to our episode last week on Journey to the End of the Night. Uh, this week we're talking about a much chiller movie, uh, where nothing crazy happens. Yeah, it's all a very just a very a very, very straightforward film, very stable movie. Yes. It begins very topical and ends very topical, so like typical. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this movie has Michael Keaton in it. Yes, it does. Is this our first Michael Keaton movie we've ever? gotten to cover yeah i think it is i think he hasn't been in any other fraser movies or any travolta yeah, he wasn't movies. In any travoltas so it was a very that it was very pleasant to see a, a michael keaton enter the chat yes i uh i'm a huge michael keaton fan i am too and the keaton of the saw is, is actually it's interesting because this is kind of in his down period it is because Everybody talks about Keaton's, like, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, because Keaton, like, you know, he does Batman. Um, and then he kind of kind of bounces around for a little. His 80s is untouched. His 80s is incredible. Yeah. His 90s is mostly things that don't do much. It's, well, it's like Batman Returns. Well, Batman Returns is, like, the end of it. And then it's, like, speechless, multiplicity. He has a good small role in Jackie Brown. He's like third or fourth lead in all these movies until you get to Jack Frost, which obviously like explodes. Um, and then his early two thousands is fairly dire. Yeah, because it's it's all these movies that no one's ever heard of. Right, Live from Baghdad, Quicksand. He's in Herbie, fully loaded. Herbie, fully loaded. Chick Hicks in Cars. Yeah, his, his biggest movie in the early two thousands is Cars, that and is, that kind of says a lot. That does. That really does. But say, Keaton's say really, really in the ruts until around like two thousand ten, when he gets the other guys in Toy Story three, and like he's kind of the the standout in both those movies. And that eventually does lead, does lead to him getting, you know, Birdman. Which All is the way big, in 2014, yeah. though, four years later. Which is, you know, his big comeback, and then he does Spotlight, The Founder, Spider-Man, yada, yada, now yada. Now he's in everything again. He is extremely successful again. Everyone loves Michael Keaton again. He's back as Batman again. He's fucking back as Batman. He was in Morbius, everyone's favorite movie. Have I know you don't watch TV, Jeff. I've not seen Dope Sick. I know you're about to say that. I heard it's good. He's so good in Dope Sick, my dude. Didn't he win an Emmy for it? Did he win an Emmy I for it? I he won an Emmy for it. Let me it. look it up. Won two Emmys. One of them was for Outstanding Lead in a Limited or yep. Anthology Series, Michael Keaton. Yes. He is so good in Dope Sick, bro. Mm-hmm. Ah! Ah! I love Michael Keaton. Yeah. 
I love Michael Keaton too. Him in Spotlight. Oh, he's so good. Spotlight's just maybe the best movie ever made. It. I agree. Spotlight's so good. Spotlight is so fucking rewatchable. Spotlight's one of the. If you ever want to watch, like, if someone's just like, "What's a well-directed movie?" Just watch Spotlight. I I could do a four-hour video essay on the rewatchability alone yeah. on Spotlight. Yeah. Why is it so fucking rewatchable? It's so well made. It is so well made. I know what happens. It's, I know what it's about. I know how it ends. Yet I can always start, start it, and pay full attention to yeah. it the entire movie. No, I can watch Spotlight every day. It's so good. It, it's it's it got saddled in the year as being like the e like the easy pick for best picture when it won. Because like what was it up against? It was that the Revenant. I think it was right? the Revenant. Um, here it was twenty sixteen Oscars. It was up against, oh, it was, the lineup was The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max, The Martian, The Revenant, and Room. Wow, what a year. The big argument was kind of between The Revenant and Mad Max. I remember that was like the- For best picture? For best picture. That was like what people were kind of like pitting against each other. Yeah. I know The Revenant was a big top dog dealer. Well, because, correct me if I'm wrong. 2016 was the Leo year. Yeah. And I don't mean like, I don't mean like Leo. Oh, of course it was Leo won best, best actor. No, I mean, this was Leo's like next performance after like Django Unchained. This was like the nomination that he had to win. Yeah. Cause he had like what? Four nominations beforehand. Yeah. But this is like this was the year where um like all the technical awards went to Mad Max yes. and people thought it was building to a sweep. Yeah. And then the Revenant won best cinematography yes. and best director. Yes. And so people were like, oh, the Revenant's about to win. And Leo won best actor. Yeah. And, you know, Bridge of Spice had won supporting actor and Room had won best actress. Yeah. Screenplay went to the big short and spotlight. Like everyone was like, What where's this going? Wait, screenplay went to... Adapted went to the big short, original went to Spotlight. Is Spotlight an original? Yes. Even though it's based on a real tale. It is based on real things, but it isn't based on a like article. Or... Oh. It is an original screenplay about the Boston Globe reporters. It's not oh. based on a book. It's not based on an article they wrote, although it uses that as like reference. Yeah. But it's an original screenplay. That seems a little loosey-goosey, don't you think? I mean, any, and if in that case, any like historical yes, drama could any be, historical drama could be thought of as an adapted screenplay. Yeah, because in, I guess that makes an sense. adaptation is an is an adaptation of a written work. Yes, a specific written work. Yes, okay. But then there's a newspaper article, which is also the funny reason why sequels are actually all technically adapted screenplays. Yes, because they are ad- adaptations of the original movie. Yeah, like Glass on uh, Knives Out was nominated for best original screenplay. Glass Onion was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay because it is an adaptation of the original movie. The first one, yes. deserving. Second one, undeserving. I like Glass Onion. I'm a, I'm a Glass Onion guy. Uh, I'm not. He's just so stupid. Oh, it's dumb. It's brilliant. No! <laughs> it's so it's d- just dumb. I like how Knives Out is a movie about old money and Glass Onion is a movie about new money. Yeah. Um. And that it is two separate ways of skewering um, the elite, but one is about you know I said just said old money and new money. 
Um, it's your Elon Musk versus your um, fucking I'm trying to find a parallel for the the Christopher Plummer character, but failing. Whatever. Um, uh, Warren Buffett. Yeah, like a Warren Buffett or something. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's an author in the book, but it's the same basic idea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Spotlight, one of the best fucking movies. Yeah, it's the so founder good. is so good. I've heard the, fa- the founder. Do you like the founder? I love the founder. It's slept on. The founder gets slept on. People sleep on the founder. Should I watch the founder? You should watch the founder. I'll get around to it maybe in like 20 years. No, you would actually like the founder. I'm sh- I am. Positive I think I you would. would I, I think you would love the founder. Actually, I, I am positive. I would like the founder. Yeah. He's got a few random ones out here that I have not seen, like Worth in 2020. Are we talking about Michael Keaton? Michael Keaton. Okay. Uh, he was in Dumbo. He was in Dumbo. He's Doc- good in Dumbo. Uh, American Assassin. Have you seen Dumbo? No. Dumbo is funny. Because it's basically Tim Burton, like, getting all his old, like, collaborators back. Yeah. And some of them are very game. Like, Michael Keaton's having fun. Danny DeVito um, is having a good time. Colin Farrell is in it. Um, he's great. Um, but it does hilariously, like, Alan Arkin, he brings back from, you know, um, uh, Edward Scissorhands. Um, and Alan Arkin maybe gives the most checked out performance I've ever seen in a movie in Dumbo. There's like a part where he's at a circus at the end and the circus like explodes. And now Alcorn can walk in and he's like, oh, this is a disaster. What are you going to do? As like there's like flames and explosions going on behind him. It's it's so funny. Yeah, uh, Dumbo, surprisingly, maybe Tim Burton's best movie Fuck. of the 2010s. I think I'm going to watch Dope Sick again just because we talked about it. But we're not here to yeah. talk about all of those movies. We're here to talk about his 2006 the movie, The Last time yes um uh, a movie that i would describe as uh kind of not really coherent <laughs> doesn't quite know what it's trying to do well and thank you for listening to our last episode last week i already on said that journey to the end of the night a movie that is definitely a very cohesive yes movie. um so the introduction to this movie um oh should we talk about fraser we should talk about fraser really quick shouldn't we yeah, Fraser, I mean, you all listened to last week's episode. I don't think anything's really changed from that state of affairs. Where I think Fraser is trying to go back to the indie drama days and he's taking yeah. lesser leading roles and more like supporting roles. Yeah. This is another yet again another movie that I would probably akin to The Quiet American or Gods and Monsters where he act, he's acting alongside a bigger name actor. Yeah. Although Keaton's in a down period. Keaton's in a down period. This movie is weird um, because I think the appeal to Fraser in this movie is the twist at the end, and I think that's why he's interested in doing this movie. Yes. Um, I think that is what appeals to him and gets him locked into this movie. Yeah, but there's the problem. Yeah, it takes uh, an hour and 25 minutes of an hour and 30-minute movie to get to the twist. Yes. (laughs) Um for us to get that one really juicy yeah the, the one movie. juicy scene yeah that almost saves the movie but almost but if you do that to us 20 minutes earlier it probably saves the movie but then what would the rest of the just minutes? michael keaton losing his shit to realize how hard he'd been played <laughs> uh i guess so uh but yeah fraser at this point he's it's what we talked about in last week's episode where he's his blockbusters are starting to implode 
And when it comes to the dramatic work, he's not getting the interesting roles to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not able to, you know, pull a Tom Cruise where he's doing um, interesting dramatic work and interesting action work at the same time in the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah. So if one fails, he falls back on the other. Yeah. Um, you know, when one starts flopping, he, it's the end of the other. Yeah. He's not really known as a dramatic actor to most. Yeah. In spite of his, you know, valiant efforts. Right. And so, and to call this movie a drama. It's listed as a black comedy online. Which. But it's not funny. It's not it's really that not funny. funny. There's like either. a few good jokes. But that's it. What what would you label this movie as? I don't even know. That's a, that's a that's the problem is I don't know what the I w- here I would label this movie as a non-erotic thriller. Cuz you know there's the erotic thriller genre which we've Yeah. Um what was the really hot Brendan movie that we talked about? Uh Still Breathing. Still Breathing where like you know I went horn dog. Um yeah. Still Breathing was kind of an erotic drama. Um, but, you know, when I say er- er- erotic thriller, when I talk about erotic thriller, I'm talking like your basic instincts, um, fatal attraction, decision to leave. Yeah. These movies that are about businessmen or cops, men in suits. Falling in love with a dangerous. Falling in love with a dangerous woman and that correlating with this conspiracy that they're involved in. Yeah. That's what this movie is. But it's a very flaccid um, uh, erotic thriller. Like, like that was good. Yeah, it's like, I don't know if you intended on, if that was intentional, but that was really good. Yeah, it's, it's a fla- very, it's a flaccid erotic. It's a very thriller. flaccid erotic thriller. That's really good, Jeff. No, that that's what this I, movie is. I like that a lot because the the main core of this movie is like the sexual tension between, between the three main characters. Y- yeah. But like, like but one of them doesn't have any sexual tension. Yeah, here's the thing: There's, one of them doesn't have any sexual tension. Um, it takes so long to get to the payoff of it. Yeah, like there's never really any tension, right? Outside of the sexual nature, like there's never any tension between the characters. Yeah, until the very end. And then number three, it's just not hot. No, it's not. Like this, like the sex scenes aren't. Have you seen Basic Instinct? Yes. Okay, like you watch Basic Instinct, like. Aside from that being a really good movie, a very intense thriller, yeah, and that movie's hot. Like it's it's compelling to watch because you're like, oh, Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone are attractive people, yeah, and these scenes are very attractively shot and staged and structured, yeah. This is interesting to watch as a movie, but also you're getting pleasure out of it. And I'm not saying that from me necessarily. I'm saying from a <laughs> filmmaking standpoint, that is how that thing works. Well, sex I, in movies has you know has it, its uh, selling point. Yeah, it, it's it's a selling point in addition to like serving a thematic and story purpose. Right. Which it I, I don't want to derail anything, mm. but like it opens up to a broader conversation of how much should sex sell. Yeah. Because here's the undeniable truth that I think people have to yeah. swallow about movies. Is that sex does sell? Yeah, but here's where the ethics comes into play. It better be good. It better be good and, have and per- non-superlative. Yeah. yeah, superfluous. Superfluous. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It better be like well, what you decide to show and do better be worth it. And I yeah. think there are some movies that 
from an outside perspective could be looked at as being superfluous pornos. Yeah. Like, have you seen, um, uh, hold on. Well, the, I mean, <sighs> there are defenders of like nymphomaniac out there. A movie I have not seen. Uh, but it has the best posters of all time. Yes, it does. You've um, seen... I've seen the posters. the posters. Folks, uh, pause the episode right now. <laughs> Go to your phone, computer, iPad, whatever you use. Look up Nymphomaniac posters. The Lars Von Trier movie. And enjoy. It's the best poster campaign ever put together. Stuart, how does this one make you feel? How does this make you feel? Uh, Did it? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well. How does this make you feel? <laughs> Stop. How does that make you feel? Stop. <laughs> Stuart cannot say what I just showed him. Nope. I can't. Stuart, how does this one make you feel? I don't. How does this one make you feel? <laughs> 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 I'm crying. Uh fucking hell. Why can't I find the name of this movie? Um uh, yeah, the thing about sex in movies is like it either has to be it either has to serve a good mo- them- thematic purpose or be very cinematic. Yeah, movies like It has to be interesting to watch. Movies like love, movies like like I mean, some people would say *Nymphomaniac*. I, I, I'm kind of different on that movie. Uh, but there are movies where the core central theme of it is sex mm-hmm. and uh, people's relationship to each other through sex. Uh, th- each other through sex that, on from an outsider perspective, can be seen as superfluous, but it like has like um, you know deeper meaning behind yeah. that. I think like the handmaiden yeah. uh, is often uh, quoted with that, that there's like a lot of sex scenes in the handmaiden yet it's defended because it, yeah. you know, it, well, that's it my a biggest, def- that's a defense because game of Thrones was a show that got a lot of criticism for its sex scenes mm-hmm. and watching that show. I number one think all the sex scenes that none of them are particularly attractive. Like, it's not like they don't shoot those sex scenes to be like, well, watch this. Ooga, ooga. Yeah. They shoot them mostly just to be ugly. Yeah. But then I think that show is so much a show about the dynamics of power. Yeah. And it uses every sex scene as a way of showing dynamics of power. Whether that's in a interpersonal relationship, in a political relationship. Yeah. In a interpersonal and political relationship. Or in an animosity in a in an anim what would be the correct like animosity driven relationship? But that show, I think, in did actually thread the line of having interesting yeah. sex scenes. To to even support that point, the because um, Amelia Clark was the, one of the most like outspoken yeah. persons on that. Because I think it was after season one. Um, and that says no actor should ever be put in a situation where they feel uncomfortable doing a sex scene. Yeah, if an actor is uncomfortable doing a sex scene, there should be workarounds. Yeah, or that scene should not be done. Yeah, I want to emphasize that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing I was gonna say is, you know, um, Amelia Clark being one of the biggest like outspoken of like, I feel like the filmmakers just want my boobs to be on screen, mm-hmm. kinda. 
and it definitely from that I think post season one changed yeah. for sure. But I still hold that the best sex scene in Game of Thrones with Amelia Clark is the one where she like she basically is not nude at all yeah. in it. It's the one with her and Drago when she kind of takes power over their mm-hmm. sex in some way. Um, because it serves like multiple purposes in that and like there's no nudity on her end yeah. from that part. But it get sells the point across. Yeah. The arc of Daenerys in that show is from oppressed to oppressor. Yeah. Oh, that's her eight season arc. Yeah. Um, say what you will, whether you like the last season or not, that's the arc that she goes through. She has to start as the most oppressed person ever, um, to end as the biggest oppressor. That's how that storyline works. We're not here to talk about Game of Thrones. We're not here to talk about Game of Thrones. We're not even here to talk about sex scenes. Yeah. This but whole point was to be made. The whole point was to be made. Do you like how much we're trying not to talk about this movie? No, this whole point is to get to that that this movie, the sex scenes are really boring to watch. Yes. It's like silhouette Michael Keaton and, uh, God, what's her name? Amber Valenta, Valletta, um, out of focus in a bed. Yeah. And all, like, the date scenes. Like, there's not... Michael Keaton is great. There's not really any t- um, chemistry between any of these characters. No, and I would even say like there's no like there's no tension. Yeah, so the thing the, that's the thing. I, I mean, should we get into the plot? Yeah, it it is one thing I want to say from the opening credits that was interesting is that both Keaton and Fraser are executive producers on this movie. No shit. Um, which you know can mean anything in Hollywood. It could yeah. just mean that they wanted a cut of the movie. Maybe they took a pay cut. Yeah, in no, that that was like the. The deal. Yeah. But I did find that interesting. The two of them seemingly were compelled to make this movie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we can just dive right into the plot. So, movie starts off uh, with a... It's like a slowly pixelating screen. Yeah. Like, we get dots on a screen that keep forming and appearing to form in the first yeah. frame. We're, of the, it, movie. the first, like, two minutes are just introducing the setting, like, the, the world of the movie, which is just at a sales company. Yeah. We never really elaborate on In what New they York. sell. They make machines for businesses. But yeah. what those machines do is never explained. They're, We're going to say printers. Yeah, we we said printers, but there's the only thing that like we have to base that off of is they talk one of their clients is named like Imprint Solutions yeah. or something yeah. like that. If this movie is like 60% uh flaccid erotic thriller, it is 40% uh drama about the DLX 179. <laughs> There's a lot of mentions of DLX 179 in this movie. Yes. It's this like machine that's going to revolutionize the fucking world. Yeah, that hasn't come out yet. Yeah, it has it's it's too uh it's too retro, you wouldn't know about it. Yeah. Uh so yeah, this movie starts and we get introduced to like the business uh, the sales business that these folks are in charge of. We should say, like, we get introduced to, like, the ensemble of the sales floor first. And the sales floor consists of a few salesmen. First, we should start with the manager, of course, Jeff. Yes. Manager, of course, the character name is John Whitman, played by... Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern. Um, yeah, Daniel Stern is in this movie. Um, it's the first time I've ever seen him in anything that is not Home Alone. Marv from Home Alone is the sales manager. I find that, I found it really unsettling. (laughs) I started swearing and cussing and smoking. No, it was just impossible. It's impossible to see this man as anything but Marv from Home Alone because I've never seen him in anything else before. Yeah. 
Um, but then there are a few other salesmen on the floor. Like we get some actors' names. Some you might recognize. Some you probably won't. Like Neil McDonough is um, one of the salesmen. Richard Coleman, Alexis Cruz Alvarez, William Ragsdale. Like there's a few different like salesmen that we get reintroduced to back and forth in the show. So yeah, we have like the, some folks in the sales force that we get introduced to, um, as well as Daniel Stern as a boss. And yeah. that's when, uh, we get the introduction to Michael Keaton. Yes. As Ted Slate Riker, Ted Riker, Riker. Yeah. Ted Riker, uh, Ted Riker. He is the top salesman of their division. Um, yes. Selling what? We still don't know, but yeah, he's there. But his whole bit is that he's like a really grumpy divorce guy. That's like his bit. Yeah. And he's an asshole to all the clients, but he makes sales. We're simultaneously introduced to the new guy on the block, who's Brendan Fraser, playing um, uh, Jamie Bashant. He's just Jamie. Yeah. He's like he came in from Ohio. Uh, he was like a star salesman in Ohio, mm-hmm. and now he's been brought in as like a new recruit in this New York-based um, sales force. Yeah, they really emphasize that you know he's from the Midwest, Ohio. Yeah, so he doesn't you know he, he's he, really nice. He tries to make friends with all his yeah his clients. It's the very like you know as someone from the Midwest, I find it very rude the stereotype that all Midwesterners are nice. Yeah. Um, no matter how true it may or may not be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And so... They get paired up. They get paired up. Jamie's uh, Ted's a, new partner. It's established that the company is, like, struggling this quarter. Ted's the only one who's making, like, real sales. Mm-hmm. Um, all these other guys keep failing. This is important. That There's a lot of other guys in the sales company who are, like, getting fired or dropping out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one guy gets got, like, attacked. Um, one guy just, like, couldn't make the cut. But there's a lot of people falling out. Yeah. Um, but and Ted's like their one guy who's like really succeeding still. Yeah. And so he and Jamie go out and they attempt to make some sales. Jamie is floundering immediately. Ted's succeeding whenever he steps in. Mm-hmm. And they, basically at this point it's more or less a philosophical philosophical debate between the two of them about what makes a good salesman. Yeah. Ted's like it's about making the sale, nothing else. You don't have to, you don't want to be their friend. Always be closing. You're not there to be the friend. You're there to make the sale. Yeah. You're there to, to like tell them, "Hey, fuck you. I don't like you, but you need like you need this is a product. better deal for you. You need my product." Yeah. Um, whereas Jamie's trying to like you know be the traditional salesman, and it's not working. Um, he Jamie's also you know he's in love. He is engaged to this woman, Beliza. Beliza, I barely Belized that uh, she'd fall in love with Brandon Fraser. Jeff Belize. <laughs> Jeff Belize. <laughs> uh, but no, he talks about how much he loves her, and Ted tells him that he doesn't believe in love. This is important. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that. Um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, he's he's the cla- it's the classical marriage is a waste. It'll ruin your life. Yeah, because he is recently divorced, as we said. Yes. He, he's divorced, and he left his old job that we will get to later. Yeah. Um, so at this point we can kind of run through it pretty quickly. Essentially they go through many sales tactics that keep failing for Jamie's part. Yeah. He he hasn't made a sale yet. And Ted's the only thing keeping him afloat. Yeah. 
uh, which results in him bringing Ted to meet to his house to yeah. meet his wife Beliza. Yes, played by Amber Valletta. Yes, um, and immediately it's Ted a- and Beliza kind of hitting it off. They're kind of hitting. It There's off. a little tension at the house, a little bit. Um, but Ted's like, nah, I'm, you know, I don't believe in love, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Then he runs into her at a bookstore. Runs into her at a bookstore. Yeah. This was a... Uh... Jamie will actually disappear from this movie for like five to ten minutes at a time. Yeah. And then we get back to Fraser. He's like, ah! <laughs> yeah. Uh, I liked the bookstore scene. Yeah, that was a good scene. It was a good scene. It was a good dialogue between the two that It also has the most subtle fucking like <laughs> foreshadowing. The wall, like... The aisles that they're in must be like foreshadow aisle or something like that. Because like they're standing next to these books and on her coverage, like there's books like called The Villains, Evil Angels, Raging Heart, Meanie. Yeah. It's crazy. It's so like incredibly obvious. Yeah. Um And so then I think the turning point of the movie is when we, you know, Jamie and Ted are are trying to make this really big sale. And Jamie crashes it. Yeah, he just totally fumbles the ball, doesn't yeah. make the sale, and he is like depressed. This like, yeah. it's like I haven't made a single goddamn sale. Yeah, nothing that I'm doing is working. I keep trying to do what you're telling me to do, but it's just not working. Blah 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 blah. And Ted makes a suggestion. Well, let's go get a drink tonight. So they go to a yeah. strip club. Yeah, classic place to go get a drink for businessmen. Whenever I'm with my coworkers, I'm like, let's go get a drink, and we go to the strip club. Yeah, that's what we do all the time. Yeah, yeah, all the time, always. We always find Bridget. Yeah. 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 But um, Fraser gets really drunk and passes out um, in, in like, a, a private room. Well, he, he's making out with this one stripper. Yeah. And then we cut to back at Fraser's home, uh, Jamie and Belize's home. Belize is wearing, like, this sort of, like, skimpy lingerie outfit. Yeah. Nighty. And she's prepping like a formal dinner, and then it, the camera does this real, really weird, non-subtle. Um... Wait, no, I'm listening. Oh, I'm uh, listening. Too. Um, this weird, non-subtle, like whip pan over, uh, and we see a Ted holding a drunken Jamie. Yeah, um, and he's like, "Yeah, we got a little drunk." at yeah. the bar and so they both carry him to their bed yeah they drop him on the bed he is passed out cold they start undressing him and then they start undressing jamie to like and their hands touch and their hands touch on his zipper yeah believe it and or then not. the two of them go to pound town on each other they start making out yeah and then they be, go from making out to making love yeah. on the bed next, next to, to a passed out jamie the camera does move over to jamie and we see his hand move and you think you would think that it's foreshadowing that he knows. knows. It's foreshadowing something else. Is it? He's faking. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't catch that bit that he's faking at all. Yeah. No. He's I pretending didn't. to be drunk. Uh, spoiler alert for the ending. Yeah. Um. Basically, I mean, like they just get into a full blown affair, and that's the next like forty minutes of the movie. Yep. Is it's them in an affair, Jamie, Jamie losing his shit more and more with Ted. Yeah, and um, also while that's happening, because of the affair, Jamie's been having problems with Beliza at home. Beliza yeah. wants to postpone the wedding. Darn and Tarma moving out. Beliza and Ted have been spending more time together, more dates, things yeah. are getting serious. And um, 
they at one point have this conversation, pillow talk conversation about Dorian Gray. Yeah. The photo Dorian Gray about how, like, you know. Dorian Gray doesn't have to pay for his sins now, unlike us. He pays for them later. Yeah. Um, Keaton um, reveals during the same conversation that he's a former teacher. Yeah. And after his relationship collapsed, he got out of that game because he was so bitter. Yeah. And, like, he couldn't make it work financially and all that fun stuff. And that's when he went to sales, yeah. Yeah. I wrote in my notebook, uh, Keaton, or Fraser, is playing Limp Dick McGee. Um, he just can't figure things out. Yeah. He's just losing shit. All of his, like, sales are failing. This guy is, like, almost comically bad. Almost. And you later find out why he is almost comically bad, but. Yeah. I'm like, there's no way. This guy is that A bad. person can be this bad at this. Right. Um, uh, and so, and he, not only when we say he starts to lose his shit, we mean visually. Yes. He starts to look more disheveled every day. He starts to have like the makeup on his face gets more yeah. and more pronounced on yeah. like how tired he looks. Yeah. He starts to smoke. He starts to cuss more. Yeah, he's going to get fired and Keaton basically bargains for him to get a second chance if yeah. he can make a sale. Yeah. It's also early in the movie established that Fraser started going to art class, and he always has, and he has a little notebook that he draws in. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um. But he gets Fraser a second chance, and he fucks it up, and he yeah. gets fired. Yeah. And Beliza, you know, talking with Ted is like, he's been kind of crazy recently. Stop taking his antidepressants. And they're like, wait a second, what? Hey, what's going on? Uh, and that's when you start thinking this movie's going in one direction. Um. Yeah, because then there's a scene where it's like. He, uh, Ted is driving Jamie and Jamie's talking about how he got fired. He's like, stop by the office. I need to tell, I need to say something to, uh, John. Mm-hmm. And when he leaves the car, uh, Ted picks up his journal. Yeah. And he opens it. And what does he find inside Jeff? Uh, he's like, looking. it's like these sketches of a woman, sketches of plants. Uh, and then he gets the next phrase. It's a decapitated head <laughs> of Beliza. Yeah. And then one of him shooting Beliza. Yeah. And all these things say, die, die, die. <laughs> like all these grotesque images of like demons and shit. It's like over the top. And I'm like, oh my God, is Fraser about to turn into a serial killer? Yeah. I was starting to hoot and holler a little if bit. If the last 23 minutes of this movie had been Fraser just like in a bloody rampage spree, I'd be probably really into it. Yeah. Same. Um, it does not do that. It doesn't do that, and there's a reason for it, yeah. which we'll explain. And so Fraser kind of disappears. Um, yes. Keaton, at this point, completely falls apart. He kind of flops roles with Fraser from the beginning. He can't make a sale. Um, people start calling him Willie Loman, uh, which is the death of a salesman character from the Arthur Miller play. Yeah. Uh, they start calling him Willie Loman. Um, the company is collapsing without his sales. Um, it's about to go bankrupt. It does go bankrupt, and everyone gets fired. The whole company collapses. Well, and then his thing with Beliza, which was still going on, like they were going back and forth, and they're talking about moving in with each other, and then she drops the bomb on him yeah. that Jamie has to go back to Ohio because he has to be close to family and friends, and I have to go with him yeah. because I can't leave him alone. Yeah. And so this is Beliza saying goodbye to Ted. Yeah. So Ted's heartbroken, too. Yeah. So then the business goes under. Uh... uh Ted loses his job. Yes. And then we cut to an interesting uh, dinner party scene. Yeah. With a character that we, we didn't mention this, but they go to this like conference where one of their main competitors is giving like a speech of some kind. And 
Michael Lerner. Yeah. Is the actor's name. He is um everyone's favorite New Yorker. Yeah. Uh Brooklyner. Um he I'm trying to think of what people people would know he was nominated for an Academy Award for Barton Fink. Um mm-hmm. he plays Jack in that movie. Um he's an elf as like the head of the uh the publishing company. He plays a lot of heads of companies. Yeah. He's like one of those actors who will come and you're like, Oh, this is the head of the company. Yeah. He's an X Men Days of Future Past as a senator, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think about what else people might know him from. He's he's in Elf. a lot. Of, I've seen him in a million and a half things. Everyone's seen him in a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, is a dinner party with that actor, and he's talking to all these different people about. Oh yes, our plan worked. The company went under. Their stock just dropped like fifty percent. It's all good news. They're like yeah. You know, I always talk to, you know, as I said in like many of my speeches to other companies, you know, the bringing down your competitors has to come. You have to take down the top dogs first or something yeah. like that. It makes it an allegory about like, I don't know. It's like something about war or uh, it's like an allegory about something. Yeah. And he then relates to taking down the top salesman of the company. And then we get intercut flashbacks to, as Jeff had mentioned previously, the different salesmen that have been getting fired or quit or they drop out and it's all planted threads that they've been affected by one other guy. And one guy says, yeah, I made this one salesman think that he should quit sales and join an art class or a dance lessons and shit. Well, I made my sales guy think that he was depressed or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. And then it's, and then the, the main guy, Michael Lerman, says and you probably did the best of them all and it cuts to brendan fraser yes who does not look disheveled at all he is slick he has a leather jacket yeah. on he's got like the comb back hair and he is like bully and same with beliza is there too also in like a dinner party cocktail dress and they're all conniving about yes i made my salesman have a conscience yeah because they had this whole plan about how we're going to fake this like relationship and affair. Mm. So, and I'm going to make myself look like I'm losing my shit. So he feels sorry about it. Yeah. And then when it all goes, the whole thing has been like an eight D chess, like scheme to throw off Keaton's groove. So the company (laughs) would collapse. Yes. It's insane. It is insane. It's such an insane final twist. It's like at the 11th hour. Yes. This movie's like, actually, the whole thing has been a multinational corporation conspiracy. Yes. But solely to fuck up this guy's sex life. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing is, I haven't really talked about this, but I was, at the beginning of this movie, I was kind of optimistic about some things. Yeah. Um, The thing that was interesting to me about this movie is the idea of Fraser playing a guy who, like, is, you know, was top of his class and is always optimistic and go getter and whatnot. And the, and the depression that fall comes when it's not panning out the way you wanted it to. Yeah. Cause this is like an interesting point in Fraser's life. Yeah. It's kind of a hard time for him. Yeah. Uh, because going into this movie, he, you just experienced, you know, sexual harassment. Yeah. Um, he'd experienced the birth of two children. Yeah. Um, he gets divorced the year after this movie. Wow. Um, and so there's like, 
I was hoping I was going to see some of him in this. And maybe there is. Um, instead, it all just kind of gets chalked up and this conspiracy plot line. Yeah. Um, so what I was, I was hoping that I, in this episode, I'd be able to talk more about like how this really relates to Fraser's life, but that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of, it's a nothing burger, but the, the, the twist is fun. It's funny, but, um, yeah, I'm in. And and it the ending ending when yeah. like we figure out the whole plan because Michael Keaton finds out about this whole thing too. He finds like a a folder on it on, at his apartment or whatever that has like a psychological evaluation of uh Ted uh Riker. And he figures it all out and so what he does is he packs up his bags and he leaves his apartment and he goes back to that university that he was teaching in. And the last thing we see is we see Michael Keaton in his professor outfit with a satchel going to his classroom or whatever, mm-hmm. signaling that he had learned the errors of his ways or something. And that he decided to go back to being a teacher and live like a pure life and help others. Maybe. Yeah. And that to me was like the most like, it, it like it took like a, a very pessimistic like ending of a movie and try to like put like an optimistic twist on it. Yeah. And it takes away the whole like what you kind of said. It's like we you know you, Yeah. We you thought you were going to be Look at that later. I think something. Okay. Look at it later. Like you thought we were going to be seeing like a little bit of Fraser into this and I thought we were going to like, you know, get like a lesson on like, you know, the the cat the horrors of capitalism yeah. or things like that. But it it all just kind of turns into like like lukewarm milk toast. Yes. So I, I didn't really walk away feeling anything after that. Uh, it's, it's such like a non-existent movie too. Uh, because just to like quickly go over the, the impact of this movie. Um, let me try, I'm going to try and find the box office for this movie. Yeah. Cause it's not on the numbers. Bing. Last time to uh this movie has no box office information. Oh, it gets released as a DVD, seemingly. It had a very limited theatrical run and then it gets released as a DVD in two thousand seven. Six. Mm-hmm. Um uh so it doesn't make any money. It had a four million dollar budget. Um no one sees it, no one talks about it. Yeah. Um, it it's just it's sad that all these movies that Brendan's in right now are either flop, big failures that get everyone's attention for how big they failed, or small movies that get no one's attention because no one sees them. Yeah, which There's is no in between for him right now. Yeah, it's like he's constantly trying and pushing through and doing all these things and trying different things and trying to figure out what's gonna work. And none of it works. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, we're getting very close to his, like, his, I don't want to say blow up point, but his blow up point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Is where we're at. Yeah. Um, and that's, 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 that's this movie. That's the last time. It's the last time I'm going to watch this movie. 
It, it's the last time I'm going to yeah. watch this movie. It's the last time I'm going to talk about this movie. Yes. We'll probably talk about it once more at some point. Probably. Yeah. We do the Michael Keaton cast. We <laughs> do the Keaton cast. Would we? Is that what we'd call it? The Keaton cast? Uh, Beaten Keaton. Beaten Keaton. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. that sounds very... very absolutely very, fucking not. Yeah, very like, uh, problematic. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's some pun we um, play on words we can do with Keaton. Yeah. Skeeton Keaton. Skeeton Keaton. Uh, but yeah, that, that's all I got. Mm-hmm. Anything else for the last time? No. <laughs> that was the last thing I had to say about that. That's all I have to say about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. So thank you all for ver- listening. Uh, as oh, um, the last time. That's that's the last time. Yeah. Uh, as always, please remember rate, subscribe on every platform you're listening on. As a reminder, where we are available on Spotify, Podcast, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Pop to our Reddit, r slash Travolting, at Travolting Pod on Twitter or Instagram, Travolting Podcast at gmail.com for emails. Um, find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Sweeney. You can find me on Instagram at Stuart D5. And as always, special thanks to Rebecca Johnson for our graphic design, Ange Gardner for the social media, and Michael Van Bodegum Smith for the theme music that is now taking you out. Have a great week, folks. See you next See you week. Next week for. Oh, for our episode on the Air I Breathe. Air I Breathe. A movie we've all seen. Yes. All right, thank you, folks. Have a good one.